It's a really beautiful and holy moment as we gather here to sing and to, to be together. And I understand, like, it is, it is really unique in really all of culture to gather in a room and to sing and to, you know, just this kind of holy moment where all these kids are making kind of their noises and we're singing as best we can and we're trying to worship God. Like, I, so if you're here today and like, you're like, what did I walk into? What is happening here? Let me just put you at ease. Welcome. It is good that you're here. And if you're here today to express joy and to receive uh, God's grace to you, welcome. And if you're here today and you're heavy laden and you're just like, that kind of joy that you just saw expressed, you're like, that could not be further from where I am right now. Welcome. The beauty of Jesus is he meets us in all of it. And today we have so many opportunities for joy. Today is Juneteenth as we, you know, I, th- I think really our larger cultural awakening has, you know, really helped understand like that, that there is a history that we need to account with, but there's also talk about joy in the midst of suffering. And, and, a, and a people living out a joy and the liberation uh, in the midst of great strife. And so we celebrate today. Happy Juneteenth. Today is Father's Day. And again, you talk about catching that, that wide spectrum of joy and grief. You know, for many of us, I can speak for myself. My dad is an amazing man. He's a gift to me. And I know for some of you, that, that is true. And I know for others of you, your father, and especially we even talk about God as father, can elicit responses from you and your own experience. So again, Jesus here carries all the joy and all the goodness. And, and the, the, the strife and the hardship does not discount the joy. And it's always so important for us to remember. I'm a, I'm a realist. I, I live in the, in the world uh, as I receive it. I, I have to be honest with that. I have to reckon with that. But sometimes that realism turns into cynicism or skepticism. And joy is not like happiness in the absence of that, those real and hard things. Joy is something beyond that, something that has overcome those things which would bring us sadness and sorrow. And so today, if you're here on Father's Day and you're like, I don't really know what to do with that, can I just say welcome? You're in the right place. And when we describe God as a father, he is the the model father, the one who fathers us in the way that we we deserve to be loved and parented. And that's what so much of our uh, teaching in Ephesians has been about. So thanks for being here today. So glad you're here. I want to make you aware of just a couple of announcements um, before we get into our teaching text for today. First of all, uh, we started doing prayer before the service at 945. Uh, because so many of you already have that time kind of carved out. So we invite you, just 9.45 to 10.15, we'll have time of prayer. There's already incredible coffee that's brewed up and ready to go. So you can just come if you're, if you're kind of free and available at that time. Come pray with us as we pray over this gathering, we pray over this neighborhood. Uh, we just kind of listen to God and ask him, what, what, what is he wanting from us? And we're formed in prayer. We want to be a people of prayer. Uh, the second thing, next week after the service, we're going to have just a brief training for our setup and teardown teams. Now, if, if you're just like, I'd love to help out. I just don't know how. Just stick around next Sunday. It'll be a, a solid 20 minutes, and then you'll be out of here to go to lunch. We'll have some snacks and stuff for you. But please, we would be so honored if you would give of your time uh, to help us set up and tear down. Uh, this stage is not a normal occurrence. That is not a part of the setup situation. That was an Arts Council deal. Uh, that will not normally be here. So if you're looking around and like, well, that's a lot of work. It is a lot of work, but not that much. 
Uh, but we'd love to have you. Uh, so just make a plan. You can sign up on our website, um, ecclesianj.com, and you can click on the tab that says Serve Teams and just click to sign up. So we know you're coming, but we'd be so honored to have you help us out. And honestly, too, it's, it's sort of the best time. Uh, it's the best time to kind of relate to people, interact with people, because Sunday can be so come and go. And so I just want to encourage you to um, sign up for that. And then the last thing is on July 3rd, because it's a holiday weekend and I know you, I know your, your type, you're not going to show up anyway. So guess what? I'm not showing up either. We're not going to have church on that Sunday in this room. You can have church. You know, you can do nature church. You can do church brunch church. You can do all those things that you want to do anyway. That Sunday, go for it. Uh, and then we'll be back here on July 10th. Um, I'm kidding about the guilt trip, but serious about not being here. Um, so please just make note of that. If you show up here, there will be nobody here to greet you, and I will feel bad still, even though I've tried to tell you. Um, and we'll make sure that that's pretty clearly communicated on our website and through our email. Well, today we're continuing in our series on Ephesians, and I want to get into our text for today. Um, I remember about a month ago, I was reading, I read these two articles just back to back, and I think they happened to just be released on the same day. I, I found them both really illuminating. Uh, and they were both in the Atlantic. One was by a writer named Derek Thompson, um, who's a younger guy. I find him really, uh, just really able to kind of cut through a lot of the, the stuff and just kind of say, okay, here's what you need to know. And he wrote this article that was called, Why Are American Teenagers So Sad? It's like, ooh, compelling title. And so I, I, I sifted through that. And then after, almost after reading that, I came across another article that was in The Atlantic written by a psychologist named Jonathan Haidt that was called Why the Last 10 Years in America Have Been Uniquely Stupid. I was like, somebody's writing some good headlines over there. And both of them, they kind of shared some common themes. And even they, they realized they shared common themes. And so they, they did a podcast together talking about those themes, kind of interacting with where these things intersect. And both of them kind of, as they analyzed American culture and their different theses that they were trying to work out, realized that so much of what's driving the kind of feeling of fragmentation and disintegration in our world is, is sort of a, a renewed sense of like, what does it mean to have freedom? Now, Derek Thompson, as he was talking about teenagers, said that in many ways, though our culture kind of says, like, you should, freedom is being able to do whatever you want. And freedom should be about, you know, kind of expressing yourself in whatever way. For many teenagers, their, their life with their parents is not experiencing that kind of freedom. There's actually a lot of, like, helicopter parenting. It's like, you know, even for us, like, with our young kids, we're trying to figure out, like, how to, how to kind of release our kids to play in the neighborhood without us watching. But it's, I, I understand the tension, right? Like, we have to sort of schedule the play dates and figure out, okay, where are you going to be and where? And we don't want to give you a cell phone, so how do we? But, you know, for, for many of us growing up, even like I grew up in the, you know, early 90s. Um, some of you guys weren't born yet, but that's fine. I'm dealing with that. And for many of us, it was just the, the act of going outside. And for some of you who are maybe a little bit more experienced than I am, uh, you, have, you, you can relate to that even more so. Like you were just able to kind of go about the neighborhood. So Derek Thompson is describing how this is so much feeding into uh, kind of the anxiety that teenagers feel. And, and then Jonathan Haidt is talking about how people have reverted to making meaning through their political parties, have reverted to this kind of sense of, okay, what is the ultimate big story that's being told in the world? 
And he's saying that like, for many people, the story that's being told is, is a political story. And this, this sort of undermines and erodes a sense of relatedness and relationship. And, and I was reading these two articles and just kind of thinking through them. And as I'm reading them, I think they're both really insightful and have a lot to say. But I'm sort of seeing these two things that they're hitting on. And I'll put up this graphic. Andrew, do you have that first graphic that has the uh, little tanks on it? And so this is from a uh, pastor named Mark Sayers. And he writes, he's, he's sort of saying, like, we in our culture, as, just as people, we need kind of three tanks filled in order to thrive, in order to move to flourishing. And what he's describing here is the freedom tank is the one in our culture that's often, like, overflowing. And, and, and that's really the message that is offered, is that you should be able to do whatever you want. You should be able to express however you feel. And that really, that's kind of the, the drive behind digital capitalism. Like, hey, you know, uh, you're looking on Instagram at your friend's baby pictures. Also, have you considered this item that's just like you're missing right now? And it's going to make your life so much better. And so it's not just the freedom to act, it's the freedom to purchase and to consume. And, you know, he's saying that in our culture, this is the tank that is filled to overflowing. But oftentimes, when this tank is filled to overflowing, these other tanks are ignored. And they're, they're equal. They sort of work in synergy, the relational tank. And this is what Derek Thompson, as he was describing about, why are American teenagers so sad? And he points to social media as like one poll. He doesn't like, I, this is what I appreciate about him, the nuance. He's not like social media is the devil, it's the problem. But he's saying it is one factor in the equation. Because so many of these teenagers and students are just staying at home on their phones or they're playing video games in their room alone. And even though there's sometimes a relational component to those things, that it's emptying their interactive relational tank. And as I thought about those two articles, what I, what I really saw was like they're dealing with uh, both Haidt and Thompson were dealing with the kind of freedom and relational elements. But the thing that they were, because they, they couldn't impose meaning in that space, the thing that they were kind of ignoring or, or realized that there were some limitations on what they were able to say was around what do we make of the world? What does it mean for us to have our meaning tanks filled up? And Mark Sayers writes, he says that over the last several decades, there have been rapid changes going on in the world. And this is building up a pressure in our Western system. And he says, with such pressures building up in the Western system, tribalism has returned across our culture, both in identity politics of the left and returned to nationalism on the right. And this dynamic only makes our cultural crisis worse creating constant frictions, outrages, and clashes in our cultures, and pushing us further into isolation or digital silos of like-minded people. I mean, that is an observation, right? An observation that explains. And so often, these sort of things are coming together, and they're undermining and eroding what it means for us to live in the world. Viktor Frankl was a psychologist who spent several years of his life in a Nazi concentration camp. And he wrote this book called Man's Search for Meaning. And the essential thesis of that book is like, as he sort of watched and observed his fellow prisoners, the people that were horribly and dehumanized by uh, the Germans uh, during World War II, 
And as he observes the, the goings-on in this, in this concentration camp, what he sort of determines, the thesis of that book is given in the title, is that if you have a sense of meaning, a sense that there is a purpose to your life, something that you are to do, then you can endure, and you can endure not just kind of tolerate, but you can actually find a sense of what, what flourishing and thriving can look at in those very limiting and dehumanizing circumstances. And Frankel sort of observes, he's like, there's people that, that became nihilists in that space, and of course, of course they did, right? Like, it makes sense. But for them, that sort of eroded what it meant for them to be human. And then there were others who found, even in the midst of the suffering and the sorrow, a sense of greater purpose. And they were able to endure and were able to look outside of their own needs and look to the needs of others. And Viktor Frankl says, everyone has his own specific vocation or mission in life. Everyone must carry out a concrete assignment that demands fulfillment. Therein, he cannot be replaced, nor can his life be repeated. And I think that's such a, like a poignant insight for somebody who's in a place where a group of people are trying to replace and to defeat them and to diminish them. He says they cannot be replaced. Their meaning almost stands as this defiance against dehumanization. And he says, thus, everyone's task is unique as his specific opportunity to implement it. So I want to give you kind of the big idea of my talk. Last week, I gave you this very visceral, emotional plea to just come to Jesus. He's your one hope. Today, I'm going to give you kind of a more uh, structured teaching today uh, because this text, I think, demands it. So I want to just give you kind of the big idea that I have for this teaching today. Uh, Andrew, I think I have that slide too. Yes. All right. I don't do this always. I don't give away the end. There's a reason for that. But today, I want to just kind of give you the sense of where we're going. God not only offers us salvation, but his love gives us meaning. He restores the vocation of humanity, the vocation of humanity that's described in this beautiful detail in Genesis chapter 2. You know, as Ephesians 1.10 says that he, he heads up, he brings all things together in Jesus. He restores us as his partners made in his image, his priesthood, his co-creators of beauty. And we, each one of us, have individual ways of reflecting this call. I'm going to read our teaching text for today as we get into Ephesians chapter 4. It begins in verse 7. Paul writes, But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it is said, when he descended upon high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. He himself granted that some are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ, we must no longer be children tossed to and fro, blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. Okay, I'm sure you've got all that. 
Like, this is one of those texts that, like, as you read it, like, I could just feel the, like, the malaise. Like, I have apostles, prophets. I have no idea what's going on here. So, beginning in verses 7 and 10, it says, When he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. Now, this, he's pulling, Paul is pulling from the Psalms in Psalm 68. Paul is quoting from Psalm 68, which is a psalm of the victory of God. It describes what his kingdom looks like. It describes God arising to, to deal with the enemies, those who are purveying injustice. And in that moment, as it describes God's kingdom, it says, defender of the orphan and the widow, this is who God is. So in describing this mighty God, it describes this God who is concerned with those who are often placed on the margins, both in their culture and in ours. And the psalmist writes in Psalm 68, verse 19, he says, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation, our God. He's a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belongs escape from death. And so Paul pulls from his own scriptural imagination as he's writing from prison. And he writes of this victorious God who has come to us, but he not only pulls from his scriptural imagination, he's pulling from the cultural world that he lives in in first century uh, uh, Roman Empire world. You see, this also, this, this conqueror who's taking things captive and distributing gifts also echoes the imagery of a conquering Roman general or emperor who would give gifts to those in league with them. And we have a sense for this in our own day. You know, many times people will want to be early on, uh, you know, as a part of a candidacy for a political uh, office. They want to be attached to the candidate early on because they're hopeful that if that candidate were to be elected, they might get a nice cushy job in the administration. And so this is kind of what's going on here. The, those conquering in the first century, those generals or those emperors would give Offices would give jobs to those who were in league with them as a way not only of sustaining their rule and administration, but also doing their, their, those people who were loyal to them a solid to reward their followers. And Paul writes in verse 11, he says, that the gifts that Jesus has given us, he's ascended on high. And when it's talking about ascending, it's talking about Jesus' ascension that we see described in Acts chapter 1, that Jesus is no less present with us, even though he's present with us in a different way, as Ephesians has been describing through the Spirit of God. And so Paul describes the ascension. He describes Jesus as this conquering king who has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And in that ascension, he has given out gifts to his people. He's given out rewards. He's given us call and opportunity and look at what he describes those rewards as in verse 11. It says, He himself, Jesus that is, granted that some are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, I've got to be honest. If somebody were to come in here today and hand me a card and say, I'm an apostle, I would have some questions. And I don't know, depending on your church background, I, I have kind of a varied church background. But depending on your church background, this may be a term that was used commonly in your church. This is the apostle, or this is the prophet. For others of us, you've never heard a living person describe themselves as an apostle. And so you might also have some questions. 
And so what I want to do today, because it says that in giving these offices that Christ has equipped the church for the work of ministry, he's equipped the saints, and it's Jesus himself doing it, I think it's so vital that we look into what Paul is describing here. And I'm also really hopeful because I think as we talked, as we began talking about meaning and significance, that what we're going to discuss today will be both illuminating for you in a way of sort of self-revelation, but also illuminating for you in the way that God has not only saved us, he not only loves us, he's given us a call, a purpose. He's given us a commission to live alongside of him, to be a co-creator of beauty, to be a part of his priesthood, to steward the beauty of the kingdom of Jesus. But it says that Christ himself is equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Um, Dallas Willard was a philosopher, a theologian, and he has this great simple paradigm that I just want to kind of put up before you today because I think it helps illustrate what's going on here. He, he calls it vision, intention, and means. And first, the vision. The vision is what you're going for. It's the end. It's the, it's the goal that you're trying to arrive at. And he sort of spells all of this out right here in Ephesians. So the vision, why did God give these different types of gifts? Why did God call us into these different kinds of roles? Well, the vision is the fullness of Christ, that we would attain the full stature of Jesus, that we would, that we would somehow know his love. Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3. He says that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. I mean, that is an expansive vision, right? To be filled with all the fullness of God. But friends, big visions are what God is all about. But he's also not just casting these like, you know, kind of Pollyannish visions that we could never achieve. He's saying, here is the way. Dallas Willard describes the intention. It's building up the church into that fullness, to equip the saints, which is you all. Now, again, you probably did not wake up today thinking to yourself, I am a saint. I'm a saint of the living God. Thank you. You're right. You're right. And we talked about this before. We talked about how do we conceive of our identity? You know, we tend to be a little overly honest about, oh, well, I'm like, I'm on my way. I'm on a journey. I'm broken. I'm I'm saved. but But it's like, no, Jesus called you a saint He called you his daughter and his son. He's called you into a life with him. And so it says that his intention is to build up the church into the fullness that God has for us, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And then he gives us the means. And this is where we want to focus today. The means to equip the saints for the work of ministry are apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And so Paul clearly states the goal, building up the body of Christ, and then he gives us the means. But he also, in verse 14, gives us the danger if we fail to kind of move in this direction. It says that we must no longer be children tossed to and fro, blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness, and deceitful scheming. And really what Paul is laying out here are two different paths. There's the path of maturity, which embraces this kind of holistic synergy that we're going to describe today. And there was, there's the path of immaturity. There's the path that just kind of like touches on different parts of our life, but doesn't immerse us in the whole of life. And so what I want to do today 
It's just kind of as a way of in, like initiation, just talk about these different roles and hopefully bring them into the real world. Because again, the term apostle, like why you may know it if you have some background you know, in church, like I don't think for many of us, it's a term that we're bantering around. You know, the term evangelism for many of us, like it's kind of like a fearful term. And so what I want to do is in like in a way of invitation and initiation, kind of introduce you to these terms. But I also, I'm hoping too, that you'll start to see like, oh, that might be a little bit the way I'm wired. On a very different paradigm, um, Courtney and I, uh, you know, uh, was four years ago now, we're introduced to the Enneagram. Now, um, let me say a couple things. First of all, I am very leery of Enneagram Church because I've seen Enneagram language take over culture. If you don't know what Enneagram is, you can Google it right now. I won't know. Um, and so, but the Enneagram is this kind of tool of self-revelation. And for Courtney and I, it was this real, uh, it crossed a bridge of understanding for us where we started to understand the different ways that we're wired. And it was this real kind of incredible moment for us. We've done some uh, stuff on YouTube you can pull up about the Enneagram. Uh, that'd be helpful. But this in kind of a similar way is sort of a like, what has God called you to? How has God given meaning to your life? And so I want to just by way of describing some of these things, these apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, begin to hopefully get you to see like you might be located on this spectrum somewhere. And when I say might be, I say definitely. All right. Um, Andrew, can you put up the apostolic? Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put up these uh, slides that kind of have these. This is all from a guy named Alan Hirsch. Uh, and I've got to spend some time with Alan Hirsch in some different settings. But he's written extensively on this stuff. And he has this great book called 5Q, if you're really interested in this. Uh, but we also, if you got our weekly email, if you're kind of on that email list, you got a uh, kind of a uh, link to an assessment. And some of you guys sent me your assessment. I can't wait to sort of dive into this a little more. Uh, but just it's a simple assessment for seeing where you might fall on this paradigm. And so I'm hoping to lay this paradigm out in a way that it makes sense to us. And we'll kind of see where we're tracking from here. So the first one, apostolic. Now, I'm going to put these slides up, and then I'm going to read to you kind of a broader description of those who might be apostolic, so you can kind of do the listening with your eyes and your ears at once. Apostolic people tend to favor entrepreneurial edges of the church and have a natural capacity for adventure. They tend to be less risk-averse than those who fall under other forms of ministry and leadership. Following this pioneering instinct, they are the ones most likely to engage at the edges of the organization to innovate, to extend the faith into new ground. They therefore provide the catalytic, adaptive, movemental, translocal, pioneering, entrepreneurial leadership needed to spark, mobilize, and sustain movement. How many of you, when you hear that, you're like, come on, let's go. Like, why are we sitting in this room? Let's go outside right now. And let's start something. Now, how many of you, when you hear that, are like, okay, let's settle down a little bit. <laughs> Come on. And so if, if you're hearing that and that's firing something in you, perhaps, perhaps you've been wired with a little bit of that apostolic edge. And as I'm going to illustrate to you all of these, Paul will use these synergistic systems when he describes the church. He'll use a metaphors like the body. And in Corinthians, he says, like, how can one part of the body say to the other, I have no need of you? And the insinuation is that you can't. So we all, as we read these descriptions, this is all a synergistic system, interlocking, working together. 
But the apostolic folks are the people that we need. And many of you, because you're at a church plant in the very early stages, you kind of are like, you're nodding your head a little bit. Like you can at least, you can at least get down with this kind of thinking. All right, let's go on to the prophets. The prophets are often agitators for change. In the name of greater faithfulness, they will tend to ask pointed questions that highlight God's call. The gap between our obedience and his will and our responsibility to act accordingly. Outside the ecclesia, not just ours, but the broader name for the church, prophetic men and women are agents for broad cultural change, social justice, and incarnational integrity. They are the God-oriented mystics who call all people to attend to the voice of God wherever and however it reveals itself. Listen to this. The prophetic vocation is likely the most difficult of all the apes callings, partly because of the personal vulnerability involved. Jeremiah describes God as a consuming fire. At one point in Jeremiah's life with God, he basically is accusing God of betraying him. He says, you lied to me. So being a prophet is no, no light work. But also, because the prophetic word, like the word of God that the prophet seeks to represent, is often rejected by people who prefer their own ways. Remember, Jesus was rejected. The prophet is likely the loneliest of all the vocations and the one most open to misunderstanding. The prophets. You think about those people that call us back to a faithfulness. You think about Isaiah writing, hey, you gather for your church services, yet God says he hates your songs. You know why? Because you ignore the cause of the poor and the widow. And so we need the prophets to call us back to a sober-minded faithfulness to Jesus. I think of a, a man like Brian Stevenson, who started the Equal Justice Initiative, a lawyer. If you've ever heard any story, read A Just Mercy. Brian Stevenson is the most compelling speaker I've ever heard in my life. And I listen to him talk about the work that he's doing and just telling the story of America he started a museum just that, that, that really just locates on a map the different places where lynchings have happened in America. And in doing so, he's just trying to say where, where black people in our history have been lynched. He's just trying to say, this is our story. This is who we are. And until we deal with that, there is no going forward. And we need people like that in our midst operating in this church because there may be times where, as the leadership or as the church, we're like, everything's going great. Look at the room. It's full. You're like, no, you're missing it. We need God's voice and his presence here. And the prophets are often the vehicle for that kind of presence. All right, the evangelist. The evangelists, the evangelists tend to be great social connectors. Now, this is not just extroverts. I want to make that very clear. The kind of people who can link the rest of us up with the world. They have a capacity to make connections with people in a way that demonstrates social as well as emotional intelligence. In many ways, their function is therefore genuinely priestly in that they mediate God uh, between God and his people as well as between people and people. Evangelists also have an affinity for the gospel of Jesus that makes them adept at applying it to people's unique experience and circumstances. They are often really positive, good news people. Sharing of good news is an inextricable part of their capacity to understand people and make connections. All of us are here at some level because of somebody was evangelistic towards us. Somebody shared the good news of Jesus with us, either by sharing their life or by sharing, you know, just in the best way that they could what Jesus has done. 
You think about in a place such as our own, we're like, you guys are, you guys are a bit weird to be at church on a Sunday morning. Like you're a bit strange here in New Jersey. And I like that. I like that kind of countercultural strangeness. But Jesus is about extending that table, about inviting more people. It doesn't mean just coming to Sunday morning church, but about embracing the good news that he has offered to all people. And so we need the evangelists in our midst. We need those people who are seeing things from different angles, who are seeing how different people hear the story. And because the beauty of the story of Jesus is that it is transcultural. It's not acultural, but because of the story that Jesus lived out in a specific time and place, Jesus' story meets all people in their context, in their language, in their culture. And so we have to be sensitive to be able to tell that story well. You know, as I said last week, I'm here because an evangelist traveled all over the world and found himself in London telling a group of people there that Jesus is Lord and he loves you. And that changed my life even long before I was appeared on the scene. All right, the shepherd. The shepherd, at its core, the shepherd is the vocation tasked with creating and maintaining healthy community, promoting the common good, encouraging people in the faith, and ensuring the welfare of the people as well as the broader society in which the community abides. Shepherds pay close attention to their immediate environment, noting details about people in the state of the community. They necessarily have strong empathetic aptitudes and heightened capacities, for meaningful friendships and relationships. I am so grateful for the shepherds who walk alongside people. You know, Paul elsewhere will say, bear one another's burdens. What does it mean for us as a people to have models that are showing us what it means to grieve with people, to walk with people, to, to deal with people as they unpack addiction, to deal with people as they walk the long road of following Jesus? We need shepherds in our midst. The last function the teacher. The teaching function is about mediating a particular type of practical wisdom and philosophical understanding nuanced by the biblical worldview. A teacher will largely be concerned with helping people gain insight into how God wants them to see and experience their world. As such, they will seek to bring theological truth and shape the consciousness of God's people to be consistent with that truth. We need teachers in our midst. We need people that can help us to see well, to hear well, to shape the world and to see it according to the imagination that the scriptures give us. We need teachers. And Paul says, he says the warning, we must no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wave. And I think about like our culture, like that's like so much. It's just like, it's just vapor blowing in the wind. It's just stuff coming at us from all different directions. And you're like, maybe, oh, maybe I should think this. And so Paul says, unless we are operating in this kind of synergy, unless we are operating with these, all of these gifts being presented in a church body, then we will be in danger of being immature. And I, I just want to illustrate to you kind of what this sounds like as we think about immaturity and we think about these systems working together. So most churches in America operate maybe with one or two of these gifts present. And if you think about, like, as we just outlined, that kind of synergy, that kind of system. And so you hear this one, and you're like, huh. Sounds, I mean, good, but kind of lonely, isolated. And for many of our churches, they're heavy on teaching, right? 
We do a lot of teaching. I enjoy the teaching elements. We show up here, we talk about Jesus, and then we kind of go about our own ways. And some churches kind of have these, you know, maybe they have two different, like of these gifts being present. And they kind of, you know, my brother's a bass player, and uh, I'm always amazed at people like like just show up in a room and just play bass, and it's kind of interesting, right? Because like usually bass is accompanying some other things going on there. But as we start to see, like Jesus, He's given us this way of being together. It begins to sound like something interesting, like something beautiful something harmonious. But it's only, again, it's only as each individual part, as Paul writes, every ligament holding us together begins to actually express those gifts. But it's just getting more beautiful, isn't it? I mean, okay, not everybody's a Radiohead fan. I get it. But then, like, I mean, you just need that rhythm. And I am so compelled by the vision that Paul has here. Because the world needs it. The world needs a church where people have come alive to the meaning that Jesus has imparted to them, have received the gift that they've given to them, and then offered it to the world. Because that sounds really good. And the danger is that we would tell a very limited story where the background vocals are doing all the work. And though it sounds pretty and yeah, it's like, oh, that's nice. It doesn't change people. And I know this as somebody who stands before you every week. I can give you the best stuff. I can give you my best every week. But until we have these expressions, these gifts being manifest in our life together, it's not going to change anything. And friends, Paul says that there's one body, one spirit. And I, I just want to implore you. Jesus manifested each of these gifts. He was the one sent by God, as he says in John. He was a prophet who was not welcome in his hometown, but he bore witness to the kingdom of God. He was an evangelist. He said the kingdom of heaven is near. He was a shepherd, the good shepherd, who lays down his life for his friends. And he was a teacher full of wisdom, a wisdom that confounded the world. This is who Jesus was. And we have been called collectively and individually to live out these gifts. And I implore you, my friend John says, if you're bored with your faith, God is probably bored too. And I think about that. Like for many of us, like God has given you this gift to step into this way of self-understanding, of self-realization, to know that you have something to offer the world, that God has not just filled your freedom tank by saying you have been chosen by the living God, that you are adopted, you are chosen as a son. That God has not just filled your relational tank by placing you in a community of people from every tongue and tribe and nation, but that God has filled your meaning tank, saying he has given gifts to the church 
apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. And though those words may be foreign to us, they actually are so, so near to the way that God has wired us and the way that God has called us collectively to serve the world. And so I implore you to just begin to understand how has God wired you? And again, we'll put out that link for the very, very basic assessment. Again, it doesn't tell you everything. It's like any assessment, right? It's like maybe, it may be so revealing. It may be like, okay, I don't know. But, but it's, a, it's a beginning step. And it's also a beginning step for us collectively to be a people who say we will not settle. We will not settle for a church that only manifests one realm of these gifts. We will not be a people who cannot bear witness to what Jesus is wanting to do in our midst because otherwise we're just going to be immature. And I think the world has seen enough of immature Christians trying to teach the world when they don't live as Jesus called us to. And I know, I know because I know you, we want to be different. And so I want to just call you today. If those resonated with you, if those paradigms, begin to explore. And then I also want to just say very clearly, like this is a call to us and a challenge to me and a challenge to our leadership to create a culture where people can be prophetic, where people can be evangelistic, where people can be apostolic and be entrepreneurial. And that is every bit of my heartbeat. Friends, if we have ministries that are only dreamed up in my head, we will have lots of meals <laughs> and lots of Bible studies. So if you want ministries that look a different way, uh, which we do and we need them, then we need you. And Jesus, as he says, he gives gifts to his people. The ultimate gift that he's given to us is himself. And again, we're kind of moving into deeper waters here. That Jesus has given us the freedom. He has adopted us as his own by his body, by his blood. He's given us the church, this beautiful expression of God's kingdom. And he's called us to be stewards of that. And Jesus, on the night that he is arrested, he takes bread and he breaks it. He says, this is the meal of my new covenant. And he invites us to be co-creators with him of beauty, to be a part of his priesthood, to be his friends. And I love that Jesus says that. He says, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master is up to, but I call you friends because I've given you insight into what I'm about in the world. And I'm about calling people to myself. I'm about redeeming, restoring, reconciling, bringing all things to their fullness and making all things new. And he says he does this by his body and by his blood. And each week we start here. This table is the place where it all comes together. Where we say that we are a people trying individually and collectively to live out God's story because it is the true story of the entire world. And that it's only as we receive the gifts that Jesus has given us that we can begin to give gifts to the world, that we can begin to give gifts to one another, to serve one another. And it all starts there. I'm going to invite our communion servers to come forward. And over the next couple of moments, we're going to invite you forward to just come and receive. And I just want to put a prayer in your mind as you come.
One of the most powerful prayers that anybody prays throughout the story of salvation is just, here I am. And you may not know whether you're an apostle or an evangelist or none of the above, or you are something. But you may not have any clue how God is wired. You may, that may be a whole new paradigm for you today. But if you just come with a willing heart and say, Lord, here I am, the world will never be the same again. So many people in so many far-flung places have prayed that simple prayer, Lord, here I am. Speak for your servant is listening. I'm here waiting. I know you've given me purpose and a calling, and I want to step into that. That is the gift that God has given us. And so I just want to put that prayer in your mind as we pray for the Holy Spirit to come and as we come to the table. Jesus loves you. And his love is so big that he's not only saved you, he's not only reconciled you, he has given you a purpose to create beauty in this world. Let us not fall short of that. Jesus, thank you for this, this like, truly life-changing paradigm, God. God, that we, you call us more than what we think we are. God, when somebody asks what we do or... or, or you know, what, what do we spend our time doing where we don't think of terms of apostles and prophets and such, God? But that's what you've called us. Lord, and when we think of your grace that has been lavished upon us, Lord, it calls us all sorts of things that in our own power, in our own estimation, we are not. You've called us your children. You've called us liberated and saved and reconciled and redeemed and transformed, God. You've called us a new creation, ambassadors in Christ. So, Lord, would you renew our mind in this space as we receive the gift that you have given once and for all on the cross, that we receive anew each week. God, would you call us to deeper waters, greater faithfulness, greater purpose, God, your mission in the world. God, to be a church that is a city shining on a hill. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've given us meaning. What a gift. And we receive it, God, with all reverence. Here we are. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. We pray now for the Holy Spirit to come as we come to this table. I just want to give you a few instructions. First of all, you are welcome at this table because it is Jesus' table. We simply extend that invitation to you. There is no compulsion to come. So if you're new here and you're sitting there and you're like, I don't want to walk to the front, that's okay. But know that you are welcome here. Also, if you have a gluten allergy, we have gluten-free bread you can take. You can come up, tear from the uh, bread, dip it in the cup, and receive. You don't have to take the elements back to your chair either. You can just consume them right here because, you know, they drip. All right. Mal will be in the middle to tell you when to come. Lord, here I am. Pray that simple prayer as you come.